Well, good morning, Central Heights. It's great to be here with you this morning. My name's David. I am the young adults pastor, and uh, Tim said he was been here for five years, and I've only, I've only been here for nine months, but one of the things I want to tell you is I've already grown to love this church. I love the people, and my wife and my family are so uh, grateful uh, to be here. Hey, I'm excited this morning. We're kicking off a new sermon series this morning called Both And. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 to 6 this morning. And it's, it's an exciting thing to start off a new series because for the next few months, we're going to be looking at this, this tension that is sometimes present in the Bible. I don't know if you felt this. I know I have. Um, maybe you've experienced this. You're reading the Bible and all of a sudden you come across this, this truth or this idea or this teaching um, and then you come across another truth or teaching that seems to stand opposed to it or like they contradict one another. And when that happens, you, if you're like me, you think, well, this doesn't make sense. How can the Bible teach this truth and, and this truth and how can those two truths work together and how can they coexist? And there's no way that this can be true and this can be true, right? Does it make sense? How can this be true if the Bible teaches this is true as well? Like, for example, how can I be free and God be in control at the same time? How does that make sense? Or how can God be good and yet allow evil and suffering? Like, what is, what is that about? How, does, how do I negotiate that, that tension that is present there? Or how is it possible that Jesus was God and human at the exact same time? How did the divine and, and humanity mingle together in Jesus? The Bible teaches both grace and truth. Which way should I lean? Should I lean to truth or should I lean to grace? How do I put these two things together? They seem to stand opposed together. And maybe you've wrestled with questions like this as you've read the Bible, or maybe your experience with this tension doesn't really come from reading the Bible, but maybe it comes from what you see happening in the world around you. Maybe you're, you're crying out and you see what's going on around you and you say, God, I heard you're supposed to be good, and so why is, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening to the person that I love that matters so much to me? Aren't you supposed to be good, God? Why don't you fix this? Or maybe you say, God, I thought you were all powerful and so why is all this suffering happening in the world? Why is there so much evil? God, I thought you were good. Why are you allowing this to happen? God, this person in my life is going down this path that I feel is wrong for them and I I feel like I should speak into that. I feel like I should lean in. But telling them the truth isn't loving, is it? Do you feel that tension? I don't know if you've experienced those tensions, but if you have, then you've experienced a both end of the Bible. Something that seems to contradict one another, seems to stand on two opposite ends of the spectrum, and they somehow work together, but we don't really know how. And if you felt that tension, then you felt the reality that with God and the Bible, not everything is so cut and dry as we want it to be. Not everything is as clear cut. And that's why we're doing this series, because the Bible does teach the same topic or the same idea or the same truth about God or, or us or life from two different vantage points at some times. It happens, and those two vantage points, they seem at odds, like they can't coexist and work together, because from our vantage point, they're opposed to one another. And so this series that we're doing called Both And is about looking into the Bible and seeing what it teaches and, and trying to come to terms with how these both ends can work together and then to become more comfortable with that tension in our lives and, and that tension with God and in the scriptures. But we're also doing this series because this idea of both and and the tension that comes and holding them both together is really not something that we do very well in the world today, is it? See, on the whole, we prefer to be either or, not both and. We prefer cut and dry. We prefer to choose a side and to stay in that camp, to huddle up in a camp that feels like we can 
have an answer that feels more safe, cut and dry, black and white, taking sides is much more what we prefer, at least I do, because it's much easier to do it that way. And I don't have to convince you of this. If you look around the world, we see this everywhere. The way of the world is choose a side and fight for it. Focus on our differences, huddle up with those like us, exclude those people because they don't fit in our idea of what is right, good, true, and best. We see it in politics. We see it in some of the biggest social battles in our cultural culture today. We see it online, like social media. If you are on social media in any way, you know that it is divisive. It is fractured. I mean, you just go to the comment section in social media, and it is vicious. People choose a side. They fight for it. They, they stand firm in their side, and they lob grenades onto the other side, and they argue, and they fight, and it's vicious The comment section, it's unreal what people say to each other, and I think that this inability to hold on to this both end and to be okay with that tension is creating a world of division and broken relationships and fractured communities and countries and isolation and hurt, and it leaves us with a deep sense that there must be a better way. There must be a better way. There has to be a better way out there because this isn't right. This doesn't feel right, and what if there was a better way? What if... There was a people and a place that showed the world there is a better way. What if in that place, the way that people lived together was so mind-blowing, was so radically different than the way of the world that people looked in and they were like, what is going on there? I want to be a part of that. There has to be something they have that is so good, so beautiful that I got to get in on that because the way they live together, the way they love, the way they, they care for one another and they treat people who are different than them, they're like, that just doesn't, That stands out against the the fabric of the world. I have to be in. What would that be like? What would it look like for a place and a people to show the world a better way? It would look like the church that Paul's talking about in our passage this morning in his letter to the church in Ephesus and its surrounding regions. And so let's dive in and let's look at what Paul says as he launches into the second half of his letter to the church in Ephesus. This is what Paul says to the church. He says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. And so Paul begins the second half of his letter with a call to the church, to every single person who makes up the church. He calls them to something. Look what he says in verse one. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. So Paul writes this from prison. He's in prison in Rome. He's writing, he's in chains for God because he's so sold out to Jesus, so in love with Jesus that he has landed him in prison. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so right out of the gate in the first part of the second half of Ephesians, Paul is calling the church to a way of life. That word walk, it literally means to live one's life in a certain way, to walk the road of life guided and led by something. And for Paul, that something that leads and guides the life in the church is always the gospel the good news of what God has done in Jesus. 
From start to finish, Paul is all about the gospel, what God has done, because when he says, I therefore, what he's doing is he's rooting what every, everything he's gonna say after this in what God has done in Jesus, what he has just finished unpacking for three whole chapters. He says, it must start with what God has done in Jesus. And so in the first three chapters of his letter, Paul is talking about how God has reconciled all things to himself, creation and people in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about how God is is changing people's lives that when people come to, to Jesus in faith, God comes and lives inside of them by the Holy Spirit, changes them from the inside out and those people then begin living differently that he remakes them to be different, to live and as a new person, as a new self. And he's talking also about how God has created and is creating a new people to stand out against the rest of the world. That's what the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about, mind-blowing, cosmic-level stuff of what God has done in Jesus. God is creating and has created a new people to stand out against the rest of the world, and this new people is called the church, and the church is meant to be unlike anything or anywhere else because the God we worship is unlike anything or anyone else. This is what Paul is going to launch us into. And so coming out of the first three chapters, Paul zeroes us in on, on us, the people who make up the church and how we are shaped by what God has done and by the God we worship. Because the reality is we, the church, the people who make up the church are shaped by the God we worship. Look at what he says in verse four. He says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so if you notice, Paul says two things that are really interesting. First, he says there is. This is a living reality. This is true. This exists. He says there is one God. But he also says there is one spirit, one Lord who is Jesus and one God and Father. And so what he's saying is that the foundation of this life The foundation of our life together as the church is the God we worship. Paul is saying this God is one and is three at the same time. In other words, the God we worship is a both and. He's one and he is three. Now hold on, hold on. God is three in one. You might be thinking, how can this make sense? You can't be one and you can't be three at the exact same time. There's just no way. I know some of us math people, which I'm not. Some of us math people are like, you can't do one and three. That doesn't come together. And I'm like, I don't know. God says it does and so it works. But here's what he's saying. The God we worship is a both and. This doesn't make sense for a lot of us. And you know what? You're right. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make complete sense because God is so beyond us. He is so much bigger than we sometimes boil him down into. God is so massive and so beautiful that it's a mystery when we talk about this God who is three and one at the exact same time. It's so beyond us, this idea of the Trinity that God is one and God is three. It's so beyond us. It's so hard to grasp. We'll never understand it fully. It's a mystery, but we don't have to despair because this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has revealed himself to us. And because of that, we can understand this God who is unlike anything or anyone else. And so instead of running from this three-in-one God and, and saying, I just can't deal with this idea of three-in-one working together at the same time, what I want to do is we want to press in 
to what the Bible says, stand back and be astonished at this God that we call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So who is this God? Well, the Bible teaches from front to back that there is only one God. We see this most famously in a, in a letter, uh, a book called Deuteronomy, and, and Moses uh, records this, and here's what he says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so that phrasing, the Lord is one, is also translated, the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so the New Testament lifts up this, this one God, that there is only one God. And then we flip over to the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, we see in Romans 3.30, it says God is one. In Galatians 3.20, it says God is one. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God. And so the cry of the Bible is that there is one God. There is only one God. But here's the thing, here's the tension. The Bible also reveals to us that God is also three. God is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see this throughout the Bible as well. In creation, we see that all three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved. That the Father and the Spirit were present and at work. And later on, in another letter that Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, Jesus, the Word of God, was present. And so all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are active and involved in creating the world and everything in it. At Jesus' birth, we see the Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in Mary's conception of Jesus. In Jesus' baptism, we see all three are present. Jesus, God the Son in human flesh, he rises out of the water at his baptism, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and a voice from heaven, the Father, speaks and said, this is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, Spirit are active and present at Jesus' baptism. Jesus spoke about all three. Jesus spoke in his prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17 about it. When he, in John 14, he discussed the coming of the Holy Spirit. And again, all three, Father, Son, and Spirit are present. And so what we see is the Bible gives us both sides of who God is. There is one God, and he is three this is the both and we're wrestling with this morning. God is one and God is three. And it's a great mystery. It's mind-blowing. It's hard to grasp, but it's true. It's true. The Bible tells us there is one God. There are not three gods, but one God. And yet, this God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each is a real and distinct person. They think, they feel, they relate to one another as, as people. They are real, distinct persons, not impersonal forces. They are real and distinct persons. And each person is fully God. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. And each person, when it means, we say they are fully God, it means they share all the attributes, the divine attributes of God. They're all eternal, they're all unchangeable, they're all all-powerful, they're all all-knowing, and on and on and on. And so that's the teaching of the scriptures, is that there is a God, one God who is three. Each is a, is a person and each is fully God. Our God is one in three. He's the three in one God. He stands alone as the unique God 
in all religious systems, in all creation, in all the world. No other God is like him. No other God lives in perfect community of love and selflessness, in respect and humility. No other God is like him. He has no rival. He has no equal. There is no one like our God. He stands alone. The cry of the scriptures from a prophet's mouth, or actually, yeah, from Jeremiah, he says this, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. God stands alone. Our God, the God that we worship, is three in one. He is beautiful. He's awesome. He's like unlike anything or anyone else. And when we grasp that, it starts to change things. It starts to change us. It starts to change how we live when we start to see the grandeur, the beauty, the majesty of this God. Michael Reeves in his great book about the Trinity called Delighting in the Trinity says this, it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a Trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something we could shave off God, we would not be relieving him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing him off precisely what is so delightful about him. For God is triune, and it is as triune that he is so good and desirable. And so we worship a God who is like any other God because he's unlike any other God. There's no God like him. He's unlike anyone or anything else, and because of that, he's worth knowing. But here's the problem. Some of us, we're snacking on this God rather than feasting on him. We're not entering into the mystery, the beauty of who he is. Now, I have a younger brother named Michael, and he's my best friend. Uh, I love him to death, and uh, he's had health struggles. He has Crohn's disease, and Crohn's disease is a really tough uh, disease. It's, um, it's an autoimmune disease, and basically, in a, in a nutshell, what Crohn's disease is, is that you're healthy... Uh, blood cells think, in fact, that your intestines are damaged, and so they attack them to heal it, and it just damages your intestines, so you have a lot of pain, a lot of struggles. You, it's hard to eat. And so my brother Mike, uh, he struggled with that for years, I think around 10 years, and at one point he was uh, 100, 119 pounds, and he's six foot tall. It was like watching your brother waste away. He's been in and out of the hospital, and I remember so many times sitting beside his bed, and praying, God, could you please heal him? Like, take away this disease. Like, it's so hard to watch your brother with tubes in his arms. And it was just devastating to watch. And um, he's doing great now. Um, he's had major surgeries. God's, he's gained a lot of weight. He's healthy. He's still not out of the woods, but he's doing great. But one of the things that they told him when he was really struggling with Crohn's is you got to eat. Whatever you can do, whenever you can, you have to eat something. And so he got into this really big habit of snacking. And so one of the things he would do is he would buy big bags or chips or crackers or something really crunchy and he would put it beside his nightstand every single night. And whenever he got hungry or he woke up, he would just roll over and start snacking on the chips that he had beside his bed. And this was really good and it worked well for him. But his wife, Jane, right when they got married, one of the nights that they were first married, probably two weeks in, she woke up in the middle of the night and she heard this crunching and this crackling and, and she didn't really know what was going on. And so she looks over at Mike and there's Mike sitting up in bed with this huge bag of like Doritos or something, he's just chewing away and he kind of stops and she looks at him and he looks at her and he goes, he shrugs and goes, do you want one? And she's like, sure. <laughs> so they sat in bed and they had chips at 2 a.m. That's what marriage is like. <laughs> but some of us treat 
our faith and our relationship with this great God like my brother Snacks. We're snacking on this God instead of feasting on him. We check in with God once in a while. We take a bite and then we go on living. And that's not how God designed this thing called faith, relationship with the living God to work. He designed it so that we would feast on him. He designed it so that we would push ever deeper into the wonder and the mystery of who he is, that we would lean in, not away from him because we can't quite fully grasp this reality that God is three in one. That's how God designed it for us to feast on him, to want to be with him, not snack on him. Because this God, when you start to feast on him, you become gripped by who he is. You become captivated and amazed by who he is. And it's not hard because when you get to know this God, you can't help but be drawn in by him. You can't help but fall in love with him because he's so good and because he's unlike any other God out there. He's unlike anything or anyone else. This is our God, church. This is the God that we worship. And because of that, this place, this people that we call the church is to be a place unlike anywhere else and anything else. Not divided, but connected together as one people who reflect the God it worships. See, we are many people living together as one, reflecting the God who is one and who has lived for eternity in a community of three. And so this church, our church, is shaped by the God we worship We're shaped by the God we worship, but we're also shaped by what this God has done because what this God has done is he's made us one. He's made us one. And Paul talks about this in that opening two chapters of his letter to the Ephesians. So he's he's writing to a church that is made up of Jew and Gentiles, Jewish people and Gentile people. And he says, at one time, the Gentiles, they were separated from this community of God, the people of God. They were alienated. They were outside of the the love and the grace of God. And then in verse 13, he says this, but now in Christ Jesus. Those are the best words in the Bible, aren't they? No matter what your story is, no matter what's going on in your life, but now in Christ Jesus changes everything. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, what Paul's talking about here is what the result of what God has done in and through Jesus. Because when Jesus came and lived on earth, God in human flesh, when he died and when he rose again and ascended to the Father, what happens is is he united two people into one, one body, He took the Jewish and the Gentile people and through his death, he tore down that dividing wall that separated them out, that focused on their differences, that that kept them apart and, and he brought them together into one new body called the church. See, before Jesus, they were separate. They they didn't want to be, they didn't like each other. They were completely separate and divided in their life and practice of faith. Two people groups with their own identities separated and divided from one another. But when Jesus came, 
He destroyed the barrier between humans and God. Yes, he made it possible for anyone to come into living relationship with him, but he also destroyed the barrier that separated Jew and Gentile people, that separates us. And so the reality is that through Jesus, we are united to God, but we are also united to one another. We are a new people being formed, the church, a people saved and set apart to be and live differently in the world, to show the world a better way, that different people can come together as one, people that have different backgrounds, different stories, different nationalities, different ways of viewing the world, they can come together and live a united life together, pursuing something much greater than themselves. This is what Paul is talking about here, a life of oneness expressed in diversity, in difference. See, oneness doesn't cancel out diversity at all. This is not what Paul's saying. See, Paul will go on to talk about the church's diversity in in chapter four, verses seven to 16. So diversity is valued, it's celebrated in God's church, but it is lived out of a deeper oneness that comes from the God at worship and what this God's done. See, the reality we live in is that through faith, if you've come to know Jesus, if you put your trust in him, you've entered into a oneness and a unity that he has created. A oneness that is greater than all our differences or preferences, something that goes beyond this building, something that goes beyond the background or the story or what is going on in life or how you view the world. It goes beyond that. The church is meant to be a place unlike any other place in this world. Why? Because the God we worship is unlike any other God. And what he's done is like unlike anything else. He's made us one. So what does this look like? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us in verses two and three, back in our passage, he says this. He calls us in verse one to walk in a way, to live our lives in light of the gospel. And then he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So the first thing that Paul says is we don't create this oneness and unity. God does. He's already done it. He's created this oneness and unity. In verse three, we see that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who creates the oneness we share. And our job, Paul is saying, is to keep that oneness and that unity, to preserve it, to maintain it, by living in relationships of love and humility and patience and gentleness. To count the other as more significant than ourselves. To be patient, to endure the struggles and the idiosyncrasies of of one another. To be gentle, to not use the strength we have to beat people down, but to lift them up, to live in the way of Jesus. All these characteristics are marks of Jesus who went before us and is now calling his people, the church, to walk in the way that he has walked, to live as he lived. And so here's the reality, church. We, we keep the oneness created by the Spirit by making visible the invisible unity played out in the Trinity between the God, Father, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our life together is founded upon and is a reflection of God's own eternal unity and oneness and what he has created. And so Paul says, here's the thing, we're to be eager to do this. We're to be eager to walk with humility, eager to walk in pa- with patience for others, eager to bear with one another in love, eager to be gentle. You know what that word eager means? It means this, a desire, a zeal to do something, to spare absolutely no effort. We are to be eager to walk this way and to do everything in our power to keep the oneness that reflects the God we worship 
and honors the God who did everything to make us one. We are to be filled with a desire to do everything we can to keep the oneness he's created. We can't just manufacture this desire. This is not a try harder thing. Again, Paul is saying this is a desire that comes from being gripped by who God is and what God has done. It comes out of a love for the God who is unlike anything else. Because when you're gripped by something, you want to live differently. Like when I first met Catherine, my wife, I was absolutely gripped by her. Talk about being surprised. One day I showed up at seminary, so we met at, at seminary. And I, was, I didn't bring my A game. I had a Batman t-shirt with my head as Batman's body, or my head on top of Batman's body. I had a hat on, and I, just was, I was kind of doing my thing. And I'm standing there getting a coffee, and then all of a sudden I hear a voice say sweetly beside me, Oh, hey, I, uh, are, do you work at, at this church and go to this young adults group that I go to? My name's Catherine. And that's when I met my wife and I was instantly gripped by who she was and what God was doing in her life. And so then all of a sudden we had this great conversation. We kept bumping into each other and I started to live differently because I was gripped by her. There was something about her. I was like, wow, this girl's awesome. Like, she's amazing. And so I started to, to show up in places that I didn't have to be so I could accidentally bump into her. I started to change the way I lived. I started to change my patterns of life on those days when I knew she would be at school. I started to think differently, act differently, pray differently. Why? Because I was absolutely gripped by who Catherine was and what God was doing in her life. See, the reality is when you are gripped by something, it changes how you see things. It changes how you live. It changes you. And so I was changed and I was gripped by my wife in Ephesians 4, 1-6, Paul is saying, be gripped, church, by this God who is three in one and what he's done for you. Be absolutely in awe and wonder at who he is because he is a God unlike anything or anyone else. And out of that, be the people and place you were created to be. That's what Paul's teaching. See, the church is meant to be unlike anything else in the world because the God we worship is unlike anything else. And in a world that is divided and fractured at war, in a world where we focus on our differences and we, we talk about who's in and who's out, the church can be a light and a voice that says there is a better way. The way that we see out there is not the only way. There is a God who loves you, a God who is three in one, who has done everything possible so that anyone can know him and belong to the greater community called his church. The way of the both and God is the better way. The way of Jesus, the way of oneness. The church can be a light that says there is a better way. This author and pastor I like from the United States, James Emery White says, in a world that is so divided, our hope is for the church to be the church. To be truly countercultural, to be different than anything or anyone else. He goes on to say, we often marvel at the growth of the early church, the explosion of faith in Christ in such numbers and speed that in only a blink of history, the Roman Empire turned from paganism to Christianity. He says the early church was so much like Jesus that they became known as Christians, little Christ. That they were so captivated and amazed by this God and the way they loved each other was what blew people away and made them want to, to join in, made them want to, to come in and be a part of this better way. They were a compelling community of love and it drew people in because it was all a reflection of the God they worshipped and a reflection of the God, what this God had done. See, from the very beginning, the church was meant to be unlike anything else. 
a place that stood out against the world, a place characterized by life in the place of death, unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, love and peace in a place of hatred and conflict, an unrelenting fight and pushback against evil and injustice rather than be apathetic and stand back and say, that's not our problem. It's a place where the kingdom of God is real and it's revealed on earth, where we don't just talk about the kingdom of God, but it's actually demonstrated in the way we live our life, the way we love the person sitting next to us, the way we engage the person that we maybe don't see eye to eye on. We're supposed to be that place, a place where anyone can come and belong and where love is extravagant, a place where people's lives are marked by Jesus and walk in his way of humility and gentleness and patience. See, the only explanation that the church is being the church is the God it worships and what the God it worships has done. See, why else would people suffer and face persecution and face death? Why else would people uh, love those that no one else loves that would bring clothes on on a Sunday to, to go into your closet and grab those clothes and put it on the welcome center so people who have lost everything can have something. Why else would we do that? Why else would we pledge to give over $2 million to create a better space so people can encounter God? Why else would we sit in rows and serve alongside people with different backgrounds and views of the world and stories? The only answer is the both and God we worship and what he's done because that's the only reason we're here. This three-in-one God and what he's done. It's the only answer. And so what does this mean, Central Heights, for us? Well, if we want to be a place with more and growing followers of Jesus and we want to develop healthy churches that bring God glory and that can bring flourishing into our city and world, then the most healthy church has to be Central Heights. And so we need to, work, we need to lean into this. We need to pursue a better way that Paul is talking about. We need to be so enamored with the God who is three in one and be so changed by him and what he's done that our life together looks radically different than the world around us. That we would do things that are radically different than the world around us because of the God we worship. So that, what does that mean? Well, I think first it means we need to remember and we need to feast. First we need to remember who God is. That who God is shapes who we are as the church. And what God has done in Jesus shapes how we live together. The foundation of our oneness is the God we worship, living in community, the diverse community of the Trinity, living out a perfect oneness, and what he's done to make us one. That is what we need to hold on to. We need to hold on to and live out of who God is and what he's done. We need to know that and be so grounded in that. And then we need to remember that and then we need to feast on this God who is one in three. We need to move past snacking on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and we gotta go deep with God. We gotta pursue him. We gotta set our agendas around how do I make time to meet with this God and worship him first and then everything else flows out of that. We need to feast on this God and become people who are so enamored and in awe of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we are swept up into who he is in deeper and greater ways and are changed because of it. And so we need to worship the God who is unlike anyone or anything else. Be gripped by him because he's absolutely gripping. And finally, we need to remember and act. So we need to remember who we are because of who God is and what God has done. So we are a different people who have been united as one to live under the one God. This is who we are. We are people of oneness and we have been called to a life of oneness and to do everything we can to keep that oneness. And so we want to 
act by reflecting the God we worship. Out of what God has done, we want to walk with humility and gentleness and patience and love and do everything we can to keep the oneness the Spirit has created. So Central Heights, what if we showed the world a better way? What if people saw how we lived together and their minds were absolutely blown by the humility that was exemplified here? What if they couldn't understand the love that we showed? What if they saw how patient we were with one another, that they knew they could belong here? What if we loved one another so well and were so gentle with each other that the world wanted in? What if we showed this world through that how awesome our God is by the way we live together? See, I think people are searching for a better way. And I think when they see who our God is through us, they'll want in. And so our God is three in one, and who he is and what he's done shapes us and fuels a life that we can live together by his grace and by his power. Let's pray. Yeah, God, we come before you as, as different people with, with different stories and different backgrounds and with different realities going on in our lives. But the one thing that we, we are here under, that we all share, is, is the God that we worship. This three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is so beyond us, so beautiful, so amazing, so, so mysterious, yet who welcomes us into relationship by what he's done through, through his son. We want to be swept up into who you are, God. We don't want to be people who, who snack on you. We want to be people who feast on you. We want to be people who, who are in love with you, who are so uh, in tune with who you are, God, that we would be changed and live differently. And I pray for us as a, as a church that we would be a place that stands out against the rest of the world because of the God we worship and because of what this God has done, that people would see us and the way we live and the way we give and the way we serve and they would be absolutely compelled. Your early church, it said that people were added to their number every day because they lived this out. And so God, we do ask that you would show up in a mighty way, reveal yourself to us, stir up our affections and help us to live away in a way that reflects who you are and draws people in, not because we're so great, but because the God we worship is so great. So we love you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise you and we thank you for who you are and what you've done to bring us together as your people, the church. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.